The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. Welcome. My name is Paul, and uh, I'm honored to be one of the men that serves on the pastoral team here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, and we're so glad that you're gathering with us, that you're worshiping with us uh, here in the Christmas Eve. It's kind of cool to sing Christmas songs together on a Sunday morning, have lighted trees on the stage. Looking forward to our Christmas Eve services coming up. Uh, hope, hope you've got, if you don't have plans, uh, we're going to be here on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. Our little, our little courtyard's going to be turned into a cute little place for us to hang out, stand by the fire, have some goodies, interact with some friends, drink some hot cocoa or cider. Would love for you to come and be a part of that from 4 to 5 on Christmas Eve. And then at 5 o'clock, we'll be back in here. And we're going to have one service, a candlelight service. It's going to be an awesome time of us gathering as the body of Christ here at Heritage. Encourage you to come. And if you have any friends uh, who would make for great uh, guests, bring them along as well. We started a series here uh, early, uh, uh, actually at the very end of November. We're calling it Giving the Greatest Gift. And we've paused our teaching series in the, in the book of Mark, and we're spending just four weeks, this is week three today, looking at this, this idea of what it means that we have this gift that God has given us in and through his son Jesus that he's called us to share with the world around us. The, the trajectory, the, the logic, the thinking in this series has simply been this. We, we, we believe that God has given us a, 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 an invitation to see the stranger in our midst as neighbor. And when we begin to see the, the stranger as neighbor, we, we can then invite this neighbor into our life, and, and, and we enter their lives, and they become friends. And then when we have authentic friendships with men and women, we can then lead them to the family of God. We want to see our strangers, we want to see strangers become our neighbors, neighbors become our friends, and we want to see friends uh, enter into the family of God. And that's what we've been journeying along over the last several weeks. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Aaron kicked off the series. He had us in Luke chapter 2. We were looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And then as we looked at Jesus, uh, him being sent by the Father, we saw the missional heart of God to send his son into a world that desperately needed saving. And then we spent some time praying as a church that God would soften our hearts, burden us to have the very eyes of God to see the world the way God sees the world, give us, giving us his very missional heart. And then last week, if you were here, we looked at Luke chapter 4, and then later on at Luke chapter 10, at, at the teaching of Jesus when he entered his ministry, his public ministry in, in Nazareth, and, uh, and he was entering the synagogue, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah that the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. And here's why Jesus came, to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty at those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the, years, the year of the Lord's favor. So we saw the heart of, of Jesus to come for the, the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And then we looked last week at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? As we're wrestling with what it means for us to be neighbor. And so when Jesus asked, was asked, who is my neighbor? He shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, we saw the very heart of, a heart of Christ. And we saw that strangers become neighbors through compassion, through nearness, and through sacrifice. Strangers become neighbors through compassion toward their neighbors. Uh, through nearness with their neighbors. Through sacrifice for their neighbors. And we kept asking the question last week, who is my neighbor? Today, right now, in Medford, Oregon, 2021, who is my neighbor? And we prayed to God, God, may, may you, may I, may we learn to see the stranger in our midst as neighbor. And we gave you a resource, a, a, a neighboring map, encourage you to map your neighborhood and, and look at who are the neighbors in your life, those men and women in very close proximity to you, 
to the north, to the east, to the south, to the west, your, your, your neighbor by location, your neighbor by vocation, your neighbor by relation. And we've encouraged you to create this map, this thing that you do, that you create, that you can put on a fridge, put in your Bible, put by your bed, people you can be praying for and pursuing relationship with. If you didn't get that resource, there's still a stack of those available at the Connection Center. They're also available for download on our app and on our website. I would encourage you to do that. And that brings all of us to today. Today, my argument is simple. My t- my, my, today, my argument is that neighbors become friends at the table. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 5? My argument today is that neighbors become friends at the table. Certainly, we can make friends in, in uh, a variety of other contexts, but there's something special, there's something intimate about the table. Look with me at Luke 5, beginning in, in verse 28. We've preached this Mark's version of this story several weeks ago here in our Mark series. This is just Jesus calling Levi or or Matthew the tax collector. Look at with me verses 27 through 32 of Luke chapter 5. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, Levi, arose and followed Jesus. Verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What an image. Here's Jesus. Somehow, some way, the Son of the living God, being sinless himself, fully God, he, he's able to in, in, intersect the life of sinners, and, and he's able to draw them to himself, and people want to be with him. There's this attractional aspect to Jesus, and he gathers with tax collectors and sinners around the table. And Jesus is somehow able to accept these men and women for who they are without approving of the lifestyle choices they've made. He's dining with sinners, but he doesn't sin with sinners. He's living in the world, but he's not of the world. This is the call that God has placed in our life as the church. We're called to live in the world, but not live like the world. Christians are called to dine with sinners, but to not sin with sinners. And this is why the table is such a place of intimacy. Notice this all took place around a table in Luke 5. Jesus modeled that neighbors become friends at the table. We're going to take a deeper look at the table in Luke's gospel. First, would you bow your head and pray with me as we ask God to meet us in this place today? God, thank you so much for the men and the women that you have gathered in this place today. God, God, I'm I'm reminded today that, that we don't breathe a breath that you don't know about. God, today was ordained before the foundations of the earth. God, you knew that the men and women in this room would be in this room on this day. And so, God, my prayer is by the power of your spirit that, God, you would be softening hearts and opening eyes and drawing men and women to yourself. God, would you bring conviction of sin? God, would you, would you elicit and draw out of us worship and authentic prayer? God, would you be glorified by the preaching of your word? And would you rouse this body of believers, rouse me, rouse us as as a church, as the church here in Heritage Christian Fellowship, God, would you rouse us to respond to you in obedience today that you might be glorified. God, we love you. We invite you to meet us in this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, my, my kids have all been athletic. And so that's been a big part of our lives. My wife and I were, were athletes back in the day, many, many years ago. And so when my daughter Abigail was growing up, she got involved in basketball pretty young. And, and when we first moved to Milwaukee, she got involved in a club team. And she made the team. We thought, you know, she had just, you know, got signed with the Lakers. She was like 11. But we were so excited because she made the club team. And I remember the coach uh, invited all of us parents out to, to grab a meal together. And I remember we, 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 we gathered in this place in Milwaukee called Club Paragon. And it was all these people I'd never met before. The only thing we had in common was that our daughters were on the same sports team. And Scott, the coach at the time, very wisely said, hey, get to know one another. You're going to be spending a lot of time together over the next weeks, months, and years as your kids do sports together. And I remember gathering kind of an awkward way. I was a brand new pastor. I just moved to town. I wasn't sure what people thought of me. It was, it was just an awkward time. But I remember meeting Lisa, and I remember meeting Kristen and, and Brent. I remember meeting uh, Tara and Greg and these people that I, I had no idea who they were at the time. And the, the words of the coach proved to be true. We spent, I mean, thousands of hours together over the next eight years going to games, sitting in bleachers, having conversations in the lobby, taking road trips, grabbing meals on road games, meals back at home, victory meals after victories, and defeat meals after defeats as we'd go to the restaurant after the games of our kids. We just got to know each other, and, and these strangers on that day became very good friends of ours. And we did so much of our life together and celebrated as our daughters worked together on the same basketball team. And I, I learned to love these men and women, and they learned to love us. And it just so happened that really at the end of the day that I can think of, a handful attended my church on and off, but none ever really became a, a consistent part of the church I pastored. But they became a consistent part of our life. I remember my friend Greg, who was kind of an agnostic slash atheist. We had a lot of spiritual conversations. I remember when his youngest daughter started asking questions he didn't know how to answer about God, about truth. He asked me to help. And so we exchanged books. He gave me a book on secularism. I gave him a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And we had a great conversation. I remember when Greg had some heart troubles and he was scared he was going to die. And I remember having some very, very, very significant conversations with that guy. Kristen, the first time I met her, she told me that her brother had just died and she was still grieving. And for the next eight years, we continued to walk with her as the grief just never seemed to subside. And we got to share in that grief with Kristen. We got to know these people. They became our very dear friends. And it was at that table in that club that we gathered around and it began. And it was funny, right before we moved to Oregon, uh, we sent the text out. Said, hey guys, one last time, Club Paragon, let's go. And so we all went to Club Paragon. The coach was there, all the parents were there. We gathered around that same table that we gathered around eight years earlier, nine years earlier. And we just got to share awesome and beautiful stories about friendship, about how we had gone from uh, strangers to neighbors around the table. It was awesome. I still love those people very much. We saw these strangers become our neighbors and we saw these neighbors become our dear friends. That's my argument today. My argument today is that there's something unique about the table. Neighbors become friends at the table. Friends become family of God at the table. Certainly we can make friends in other places, on the golf course, on sports teams, at work, volunteering at the park, whatever. But, but there's something intimate and deeply relational that happens at the table. And when you invite your golf buddies to come have dinner at your house, when you invite your coworkers to come break bread with you in your home, it's on a whole other level. I've heard it said that the most underutilized resource in the church today is our homes, and more specifically, our kitchen tables, or our dining room tables. It's in our homes, and especially around the table where relationships are formed, where neighbors become friends, where hospitality is lived out. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I would recommend as a great read, 
for anybody interested in, in deep, diving a little bit deeper into what it is to be hospitable. The gospel comes with a house key by Rosaria Butterfield. I'll read a little bit more out of the book a little later. She calls this ra- uh, radically ordinary hospitality. She said this is what the church has been called to do since forever. Radically ordinary hospitality. But in our current day, where the, it's interesting, if you look at, real, if you look at uh, uh, construction, home construction, uh, we lived in a, a neighborhood in our, in our home in, in Milwaukee that was, was built in the 40s. And when you drive down our street in Milwaukee, the most prominent feature on every home was a front porch. Big, beautiful front porches. You could sit on the porch, you could see the neighborhood, you could say hi to your neighbors when they walk their dogs, and we hung out with each other. You drive to the suburbs and you look at construction in the last 20 years, the most prominent feature in the front of the house is a giant garage with an automatic garage door opener so you can drive in, open your door, close it behind you so you don't have to get out, go in your house and never see your neighbors. Big in fenced backyards with patios and decks in the backyard so there's never forced interaction. Isn't that interesting how the construction of homes reflects the change in the way we see our neighbor today? So uh, Rosaria Butterfield says, no, we've always been called to, to use our homes as a place to both gather the saints and minister to the seeker. Here's what she says in her book. Radically ordinary hospitality is this. It's using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and in deed. And I agree. As I begin to think about the call to hospitality, the the invitation for me to make my neighbors my friends... I, as I've been thinking about this this week, I was really wishing I could stand up here as a guy who's done it well and, and share from personal experience about how this looked. But then as I begin to evaluate my life and the way I've engaged with my neighbors and the way I've utilized my home, it, it became painfully aware to me that, that I'm selfish with my home. I, I reason in my mind, oh, I have a tough job, meet with people all day, deal with tough stuff. When I go home, it's just my sanctuary, it's my abode, it's my safe place, it's away from all the stress. I don't want to invite stress into my home. So I don't open my home, maybe to my close friends who are easy to be around, but never to a stranger. But you know what? If you look at the Greek word for hospitality, it's called philoxenia, and it literally means friend of stranger. That's what hospitality means, friend of stranger. Hospitality can be defined as the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests as strangers in a warm, friendly, and generous way. Hospitality is a virtue that is both commanded and commended throughout Scripture. You go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. Here's what God says. Verses 33 and 34 of Leviticus 19. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. And so what does it look like for the church today to be a friend to the stranger, to be a friend of the sinner, to love the alien as friend, to treat them as a countryman or a native-born? What does it look like for, for those of us who have faith in Christ to invite people into our home with competing worldviews, different values, opposing priorities, deep struggles to our table? What does that look like? Well, here's where the quote in Rosaria's book is really astute. I'm going to read it to you. She said, here is the big difference. Radically ordinary hospitality practiced by biblical Christians views struggling people as image bearers of a holy God, needing faith in Christ alone, belief in Jesus, the rescuer of his people, repentance of sin, the covenant family with the church. Bible-believing Christians do not believe that a shave and a meal help someone in the long run or atone for the sin nature of us all. She says, strangers and refugees are marked by the dignity of God, are marked by the dignity of the God of the universe, 
but also by the imputation of Adam's sin. In order for the gospel to be proclaimed in in deed and in word, we must recognize that we all deserve hell itself, with all its ravages, injustices, poverty, and pain, and that only through the blood of Christ poured out for the sins of his people and through the power of God used to raise Christ from the grave, bestowed upon all who submit to the authority of Scripture, are any of us saved. The Christian home is the place where we bring the church to the people and we seek to lock arms together. What a beautiful way to view our home. The Christian home is the place where we bring the church to the people as we seek to lock arms together. What if we viewed our homes in such a way? Rosaria's book is convicting. But I believe that neighbors become friends at the table. Please turn with me now to Luke 14, if you would. Jesus did much of his ministry around the table. Some of it was in warm and inviting ways. Jesus uh, met Levi and his friends at the table and enjoyed a meal together. He turned water to wine at a wedding feast in Cana. Some of the times when Jesus gathered around the table, it was in an instructive way, where he would be instructing those who were with him. The Last Supper, uh, celebrating the Passover with his friends. Jesus imparted valuable truths about his kingdom before he departed. And some of the times when Jesus gathered around the table, it was intentionally confrontational. It was sometimes around the table where Jesus confronted his adversaries and and addressed their hard hearts and taught vital truths about his kingdom in the process. If you look closely at the book of Luke, among all the other Gospels, among Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke uniquely features the table. Ten times in Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus gathered around a table. And I read this week that it's clear that Luke uses these meals as teaching occasions, providing lessons on evangelism, justice, and the kingdom of God. These meals in Luke's gospel reflect the social values of the culture of the day, revealing the importance of social class, prominence, and rank. It's for this reason that when we see Jesus at the table in Luke's gospel, it's for this reason they provide a perfect occasion to illustrate the countercultural message of the kingdom of God. It was countercultural in the first century, and it's countercultural today. So that's what's happening in our text today. Jesus is at the table of a Pharisee, and his interaction with these men is confrontational. Look with me, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you are repaid. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. The crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. The first table that we look at, we're going to see three tables today. The first table that we look at is the Pharisee's table. The first table we see here is the Pharisee's table. We, we believe that neighbors become friends at the table, so let's look at the, the, the instruction about tables contained in this section of Scripture. Let's look at the Pharisee's table. But first, we need to kind of understand the context of Luke chapter 14 here. It begins, the, this chapter begins with Jesus getting invited into the home of a Pharisee, right? This was someone who didn't like him. These are the guys that were opposed to Jesus, so he goes to their home on a Sabbath, and they're watching him closely because they're trying to catch him doing something that they can attack and undermine. And so a guy with dropsy comes in, he needs to be healed. They're waiting to see, is Jesus going to work on the Sabbath, which was something they, they, um, they decried. But Jesus goes ahead and heals this man on the Sabbath. But then he turns to these Pharisees and he tells them a parable of a wedding feast. 
And as he tells this parable, what he's doing is he is tearing down sort of the social norm that existed in that time. And the social norm was one of social ladder climbing. And often this ladder climbing of the social elites took place at banquets and meals. And so Jesus tells them to invite um, strangers. He finishes his teaching in verse 11 before we get into our text by saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus is speaking into this culture that existed where there was this elaborate system of invitation and reciprocation. Uh, the socially and religiously elite would hold these banquets and use them as opportunities to invite the right kind of friend because if I invite that friend and they come, that's socially advantageous for me. But they know if they get my invitation and they come to my banquet, then they have to then reciprocate and invite me and we can begin to sort of whore off of one another and climb the social ladder. That's what's going on. And Jesus is attacking that. He's reading into, or he's speaking into that. I read this week that uh, invitations to high-profile banquets served as currency in the marketplace of prestige and power. And the poor and the marginalized just got in the way of those socially hungry ladder-climbing elites. They were a thorn in their flesh, a problem. One commentator puts it this way. For the social elite, the poor are unhelpful in the business of parading and advancing one's social position. And perhaps more importantly, in the current context of Luke's gospel, the poor could not reciprocate. You invite the poor to your party, they're going to eat all your food, but they're not going to give anything back to you in return. The Pharisees are, are therefore portrayed as persons who exploit hospitality for a self-serving agenda and whose pattern of hospitality both secure their position of dominance in their communities and insulate them from the needy. And so, in other words, hospitality wasn't hospitality. It wasn't being a friend of the stranger. It was a tool to be used for personal gain. So it was normal for people to climb this ladder. But when Jesus gets on the scene, he reverses the values of this. And he begins to say audacious things. Like, like uh, honor is not something that you can go attain by climbing a ladder. Honor is something that God, is, that God gives you. It's, it's given, it's not pursued or taken. And he begins to introduce the values of his kingdom where, where the humble are in a place of honor. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, they're the ones that are honorable in his kingdom. And those listening, those Pharisees had to think, this guy's crazy. He doesn't understand the rules we play by. The only commendation that someone needs, the only status someone truly needs, according to Jesus, comes from God, who is utterly unimpressed by social credentials. He could care less. What car you drive, he could care less what exclusive memberships you hold. He could care less the expansive value of your portfolio. He could care less what people in the community say, what positions of honor you hold. He's unimpressed by those things. I read this week that the humble in, in the social world of Luke's gospel were persons who were of low birth. They were of low base. They were ennoble. But in the topsy-turvy world of Jesus, the humble were most valued. And so Jesus looks at these guys who are just clawing. They're clawing and scrambling and desperately trying to assert themselves and, and take their seats of higher honor. They're, they're, they're utilizing each other's reputation to kind of climb this ladder. And Jesus looks at him and he says to them, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. What a juxtaposition to verse 12. Verse 12 is a who's who of all those people that can help you get where you want to get socially. The kind of people that are easy to be around, that, that have status and influence, your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and of course the rich neighbor. The rich neighbor is going to help you get where you need to get. Jesus says to these Pharisees that this list is grounded in the commerce of power and privilege and in social location for the insider. 
but that's not the list he wants them to focus on. Look at verse 13. This is the, this is the list, the entire, diff, entirely different list of people that Jesus tells these Pharisees to invite. They're outsiders. They're going to make life more difficult, more messy. It's going to be harder. They come from a compromised or oppressed background. They're outsiders. They're the kind of people who wouldn't advance anybody's social standing. They would be seen as scourge or a distraction or, or, or difficulty. They're the poor, the crippled, the lime, the blamed. And to this audience, what Jesus was saying was so in their face, it was unthinkable. It would undermine the pursuit of power and prestige. To invite these kind of guests to your party would mean the death of your social ascent. Because these elites very much reveled in the distance that existed between the haves and the have-nots. But Jesus collapses that. And this is exactly what you think Jesus came to do. He came to turn the world upside down. When the, when, the, when the disciples, who are just a bunch of ordinary men in the book of Acts, as they were spreading the message of Christ, do you remember what the religious elite said of them? Like, these are just a bunch of ordinary men, but they're turning the world upside down. That's exactly what Jesus called them to do. Turn the world systems on their head, where the poor and the humble are the ones to be exalted. Do you remember what Jesus said his values were at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? the Beatitudes, the, what, it, what it's blessed to be. It's insane. If you were just to look at this without knowing this came from the mouth of Jesus, none of us would read the Beatitudes and think them something we would want in our lives, the upside-down values of the kingdom. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that it is, it's blessed to be poor in spirit. He said it's blessed to mourn. It's blessed to be meek, to hunger, and to thirst for righteousness. It's blessed to be merciful and pure of heart and to be a peacemaker. He went on to say it's blessed to be persecuted. In his kingdom, it's blessed to be reviled and persecuted and have all kinds of falsehoods uttered against you on Jesus' account. In his kingdom, this sort of radical, ordinary hospitality that he's telling these, these scribes to subscribe to uh, would, have been, uh, would have made sense because we see later on in the Gospels where Jesus describes his kingdom as a place where anyone who desires to be first must be last of all and a servant of all. To enter the kingdom of Jesus, you have to die to self. And to be born again to new life, that's upside down. The kingdom of Christ is built on uh, a sovereign God who became a suffering servant. And, and the way to the kingdom goes through a, a Roman torturing device. It's, it's an upside down kingdom. Jesus said he came not for the wealthy and the prestigious and the established and the famous. No, he came for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. So those who invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to the table... Those men and women in his kingdom who invite the captive and the oppressed to the table, they'll be blessed. Because they know that they're not doing it for repayment. There's, there's, no, there's no benefit, no ego benefit, no social benefit. It's just love. Because they cannot repay you. For Jesus says in verse 14, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. This is an eschatological thing. This is an end times thing. There will be a day when Christ returns and we stand in his presence, and the dead are resurrected to life. And Jesus is saying at that day, the way in which we live today, will reap reward. In other words, those who, who spend much to live out Jesus' kingdom values in this life can look forward to lavish reward in the next. Though they may not climb social ladders, though it may cost them dearly as they extend lavish hospitality towards the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and, and toward the poor and the captive and the oppressed, Jesus assures all that love these men and women in this way, all that live with this kind of ordinary radical hospitality will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So that means that those who belong to the kingdom of Christ are going to hold these values. You can't fake it. The Spirit of God creates this, this, this ethic within us, these table ethics 
And whether it's Jesus speaking to them then or him speaking to us now, the table ethics look the same. So as we look at our tables in our homes, is it a place where we see people gathering, especially the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, both literally and figuratively, or the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed? Our tables are to be a place where people experience the very presence of Christ people who most desperately need it. Our, our tables are a resource that God has given us to be used for his glory. And it's at the table where neighbors become friends. Secondly, let's look at verses 15 through 24. Here in verse 14. As the socially elite Pharisees are squirming, they're not liking what Jesus is saying. He's shining a light onto their hypocrisy and their, their selfish ambitions. One guy pipes up and he says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he says. This is like a nationalistic claim, just trying to kind of stop the conversation. Oh, but God bless Israel, basically. It's kind of, that's kind of what he's saying. In other words, this guy is saying to Jesus, uh, We don't like your teaching on hospitality. You need to stop. We, we think your teaching that the humble will be exalted is insane. We think that your instruction for us to not invite our elite country club friends to our banquet is insane. We think that your instruction for us to instead invite the riffraff of society, the difficult people to our home to gather around the table, that's equally insane. So therefore, let's stop, stop talking about this, Jesus. I don't want to talk about the poor or the blind or the lame or the crippled. Uh, let's just say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's kind of a trump card. Stop talking. Uh, it's, an exclusionary, it's, an exclu- it's an exclusionary claim that pushes up against what Jesus is teaching about inclusion right now. He's talking about including those on the fringes. And he makes this exclusionary comment saying, there'll be a day when we don't got to worry about the poor or the crippled or the lame or the blind. They'll be out of our hair forever. And we, the good Jews, will be at the Lord's table forever and ever. And we don't have to worry about anybody else. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Wrong. And he tells them another parable. Look at Luke 14, verse 16 through 24. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The the first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. The other said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things to his master. The master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Ouch. This great banquet that Jesus speaks of in his parable, it's referring to the arrival of his kingdom at the ministry of Jesus. We see its initial uh, present taste of joyful fellowship with God that's going to happen now with Jesus on the scene, but there's going to be a day it will be more fully realized at the resurrection of the just. Jesus' arrival has ushered in the kingdom of God, and 
And when he speaks about those making excuses why they can't come, he's talking about these, I've been married, and I just bought five oxen, or I bought a field. Jesus is addressing the very men at the table. This, is talk, this, this parable is saying that, that, that God's kingdom has arrived in Jesus. The people of God, the people of Israel from which the Messiah has come are the ones that were invited. They've had the invitation. It's through Israel that the invitation has come. But the very people that Jesus came through and for are rejecting him. The very men at the table are more interested in holding on to their social ladders than listening to the teaching of Jesus. So they reject Jesus and ultimately they nail him to a cross. So Jesus is calling out these men. They have the RSVP to the banquet uh, at home on the refrigerator with a magnet. But now they're making excuses as to why they can't come. These people have put business of everyday life ahead of the claims of God and his kingdom, and they are therefore not worthy to enter the banquet, Jesus says. Okay, so if the original invitees aren't invited to the banquet because they've rejected the master, Jesus, then who's, who, who gets to come to this banquet then? Well, well, Jesus says the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, that's who. Or if you look at his teaching in Luke 4 when he read out of Isaiah, the, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, the master of the banquet has sent his servants into the streets and into the lanes to grab anybody who wants to come to the Lord's ta- table. He, the streets and the lanes within any city was where the outcasts of Israelite society would have been found, the riffraff. This is where the poor, the crippled, the lime, and the blind would have been hanging out desperate for intervention. The highways and the hedges were outside of the city. This is where Gentiles would have been gathering. And so this, this, this refers to Gentile inclusion. This, this banquet table of the Lord isn't just for the, for the Jewish people. It is for all people. It is an inclusionary statement. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago when, Jesus, when Simeon held Jesus up and he said this, this, is, this is salvation for all people. We see this being lived out here as Christ is teaching. The kingdom of God has arrived with the arrival of Jesus and the banquet table of the kingdom is open to anyone who is hungry and will respond to the invitation. There's no limitations, no social hurdles, no ethnic lineage, no blacklists, no reservations. Anyone who is hungry can come. The invitation stands. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there's tables featured throughout Luke's gospel. One of the most beautiful pictures of, of the table being a place of inclusion for Jesus in the face of the, the elites is found in Luke 7. If you want to turn back there, I'm going to read just a section of this text. In verse 38, there's this very well-known scene where Jesus is reclining at table with some Pharisees, and this woman comes, a sinful woman comes and sort of crashes the party of the elites. They, they are disgusted that this woman with a questionable reputation would dare come into their party. But we see the way Jesus interacts with this woman at this scene. I'm going to read the whole thing starting in verse 36. Follow along. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, the woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner." Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, something to say to you. Say it, teacher, Simon says. Verse 41. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed owned 500 denarii, the other owned 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. 
And Jesus said to Simon, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those were at table with him, began saying among themselves, who is this that he even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Man, when I look at that scene, I see this ethic of Jesus being played out in real time. This woman was a questionable woman, had a colored past, an awful reputation. Everyone looked down their nose at her. She was dirty. She was riffraff. And we see Jesus inviting her to the table, showing her great love, offering her forgiveness in the face of the religious elites who can't stand it. So we've looked at the neighbor, the table of the, of, the, of the Pharisee. We've looked at the Lord's table. And we believe it is at the table where neighbors become friends. And there's a third table that I think we're meant to look at today. And that's your table. Or the Christian's table. Because as we look at these two stories, the very real story of the Pharisee and then the parable that Jesus told about the Lord's table, I think those two stories are meant to inform the way we are to think of our table today. We've seen a table in the past, which was the very real table of the Pharisee. We've seen a table in the future, which is the table of the Lord. And now we'll look at a table in the present, which is your table and my table if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus in our text informs us how we're to utilize and think of our table. Remember what he said to the, the Pharisee concerning the table. He said, when you feast, don't invite those who are easy, those who will advance your cause. Instead, when you feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And when he was teaching about the values of his kingdom, what the kingdom's table is going to be like, the future table of the kingdom, Jesus said, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Who do you suppose these servants of the master are that are inviting the the, the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled? Who, Who do you suppose these servants are that are going to the highways and the hedges and compelling people to come to the Lord's table, to come to the master's table? Who are these servants? Well, in the parable, that would be men and women who are of the kingdom. It's you and me. We're the servants. We're the ones that are supposed to go to the lanes and the streets and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. We are the servants of the, of the master who are to go to the highways and the hedges and to compel people to come and eat their fill at the Lord's table. All are welcome. No litmus test. Come in faith. That's us. That's our job. There's something so intimate and so beautiful that happens at the table of the Lord. And we're to compel people. That's a strong word in the Greek. It's a very strong word to strongly urge, to plead, to, to implore people to respond to this invitation of the master. There's something special about the table. There's conversation and there's vulnerability. There's sharing. There's seeking and understanding. And I do agree with the sentiment I shared at the beginning of my message. Perhaps the most underutilized resource in the American church today is the dining room table. Or the kitchen table. Or maybe the kitchen bar or the patio or the porch or maybe the couch. The most underutilized resource in the Christian church today is our home. 
Notice how we've moved in this series. We began this series three weeks ago, and we asked everybody in our congregation to, to set aside a time on a Thursday night to pray for, for Jackson County, for, for the Rogue Valley. We invited you to pray for your town, whether it's Shady Cove or Central Point or Eagle Point or, or, or Jacksonville or Medford or, or Talent or Phoenix or Ashland or some other little burb. We asked, or Jackson, we asked you to pray for your town, pray for the county. Just look at where God has plotted us. Let's pray, God, soften our hearts. God, give us your eyes to not just drive by mindlessly and forget the people to our left and to our right, to not just get locked in our own little worlds, live in our own little agendas, but God, cause us as a church to lift up our eyes by the power of your Spirit, break our heart for what breaks yours, that we may see the world the way you see the world, not indifferent, but with compassion and a desire to draw near and be your hands and feet. And then the next week, last week, we prayed that God would even narrow our focus all the more. Because there's 170,000 people in our county that have already rejected Jesus or have never heard the gospel, that's an overwhelming number. We can't even begin to fathom that. But we can begin to fathom the few people that are in our inner, our immediate presence, the people that live to our north and to our south and to our east and to our west, the people that we work alongside, the people that we, we go to school with or the parents with whom uh, our kids share the same sports team. We can know those few people, can't we? So we went from praying for the, you know, southern Oregon, Jackson County, Rogue Valley, to then praying for our neighborhoods identifying who are those few people that we have interpersonal interaction with that we know and who know us. And we ask you to create a map that you can begin to pray for and seek relationship with these few people in your life. Well, now the circle goes a little bit tighter today. Now we're asking you to look at your table. Whether it's a table on your patio or the table in your dining room or the table in your kitchen, we're asking you to look at your table and say, how might God be positioning you in your neighborhood? Maybe God has blessed you with the resource of a table where you can sit and begin to have meaningful interaction, where the stranger can become neighbor and the neighbor can become friend over a meal. Zaria Butterfield, she goes on in her book, and i got to read this because I just think it's, I think it's powerful. She says, As people gather around your table, Christ heals the parched lands of their hearts as you share words of salt and light, informally spilling into the needs of the moment with humility, patience, Gentleness and open Bibles. Radically ordinary hospitality means silence and sadness turn into prayers without calling for prayer requests. It happens when, B, when Bibles flip open and tension or division escalates, not to avoid escalation, but to ask Jesus to enter it. And so I just wonder, as you begin to look at your life today, as you begin to look at your home, what are the tables in your life? Maybe it's the table... Uh, in your kitchen. Maybe it's a restaurant table. I recognize that sometimes there's some stress that might come with inviting people into your home. You worry about what you might be exposing your kids to, your family to. So maybe it's a restaurant table. Maybe it's a patio table. Maybe and, and one of the things I learned in Milwaukee, which, which was so helpful for me, uh, the community that I pastored was very multi-ethnic, and we had a large Hispanic population that, that attended my church. And I didn't know a whole lot about just kind of general Hispanic culture. Um, I knew that food was a big deal. And so I began to gather with my friends from a bunch of different ethnic backgrounds, and I just began to ask them questions because I, like, I didn't know what it was like to pastor a multi-ethnic church. And I'm like, help me understand what it's like to be you and, and what are your cultural norms and what are things I can be mindful of so I don't step on toes, hurt feelings, say something stupid. And I remember one of my friends said, Paul, you don't always have to be the host. One of, the, one, of the, one of the best ways to show hospitality sometimes is just letting somebody else host you by going to their home and sitting at their table. And especially in the Hispanic community, I learned 
the table is a huge deal, bigger than, than in the, any sort of culture I grew up. And to go into someone else's home and let them serve me and be hospitable to me was just as powerful as inviting them into my home. So for some of you, the table is not a part of your life today. As I talk to you about seeing your table as a resource, as a place of community and intimacy, you're thinking, we don't even sit at our table. It collects laundry or the kids' homework. Like, we don't, like, I sit on my lap, we watch TV. Then let me ask you to start with this. What about if you begin to make a priority in your life to reestablish the table as a gathering place for your family? Maybe not every night of the week. Maybe you pick one or two nights of the week if your kids are busy or you're busy working late. What if you begin to prioritize making a gathering place around your table where you can begin to ask questions and pursue relationship even with your own family? And when you begin to establish that intimacy around your table as a family, you can begin to invite other people into that place of intimacy. Do you remember in Matthew 25, as, as Jesus was talking about final judgment, he was painting this picture of what final judgment would be like for the just and the unjust, for the righteous and the unrighteous. And he painted this picture in Matthew 25, uh, beginning in verse 37. He said, uh, the righteous will answer to him and they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say unto you, as you did to one of the, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. In other words, when Christians open their home, when they free up their table, when they learn to share their resources to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, or the imprisoned, you may be doing it unto Jesus. When Christians share with the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, it may be Jesus himself. There's this scene at the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 19, where Jesus is um, interacting with a man by the name of Zacchaeus, beginning in verse 1, read through verse 6. And it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a, a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass along that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down. And received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus took Jesus to his home. Jesus invited himself into the home of Zacchaeus, and Jesus went to the home and they enjoyed fellowship together. I think of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25 when I, when I was hungry or, or, or imprisoned or naked, you clothed me, you fed me, you showed hospitality to me. It just may be when we invite our home, invite men and women into our home, we are, we are, we are inviting the very presence of Jesus into our family and into our homes. Are any of our neighbors who are a part of the hope of the gospel, I think of them. I think of those men and women who are a part of the hope of the gospel. They're, they have poverty of spirit. They have, they're crippled and lame. In America, we don't have as many of those physical ailments that they would have had in the time of Jesus interacting with these Pharisees. But when Jesus teaches about the, the Lord's table and he uses that same language, that same language of being uh, poor and, and lame and crippled, and blind. We, we, can, we can apply that analogously. There's men and women in our midst who are spiritually blind, who are morally crippled, who are walking in darkness. And God has positioned us as his church to see stranger as neighbor, neighbor as friend, 
and friend as family of God. And I get it. It can be hard. I was chatting with the staff this week about that, and we're like, what's hard about this is like, it's, it's, it's frightening to bring people into our home. It's hard. It's messy. It's not easy. It can be challenging. Several years ago, there was a young woman who we loved. She had a son who we loved, and she was battling with heroin addiction. And uh, our home seemed to be the only place for her. And she was battling some legal troubles, trying to get into rehab, trying to straighten her life out. But we opened up our home and we invited her in after a long history with her where she had taken and lied and stole for years. And then this opportunity came for her to go into rehab, but there was a waiting list. We're trying to get her in. We're advocating on her behalf. And we invited her to come live with us, her and her son. And it was so hard. You know, you had to nail everything down, lock everything up because nothing is safe because you never know what's going to be taken. It was devastating when she would show up stoned out of her mind, dragging her son in, son in tow. It was devastating when she would just disappear, fall off the face of the earth. We didn't know where she was, thought she was under a bridge dead somewhere. I'm calling my friends in law enforcement, asking them to, if they found any pretty blonde girls who, are, uh, uh, who died of an overdose. It was horrible. Our life was miserable for a long time. It was super hard, super hard. I wouldn't change anything. But I recognize how hard this can be when you begin to say, man, my home is not my home. It's a gift from God. He's resourced me with a table and a kitchen. I'm going to use it to, to bring men and women into my family who I can love, where I can see my neighbors become friends. It's really easy to make that really, uh, to, to, to clean that up and to make it really, uh, and, and cast it in a way where it's only seen in a positive light. I'm telling you, it's hard. And it's going to be hard. And I encourage you, as you open your home and begin to share the resources God has blessed you with others, use discernment. Use wisdom. As you invite strangers and neighbors into your home, be wise. Sometimes it's better to to sit around the table at your favorite restaurant or diner or sit at a table in their home. When I first moved here, I, I met Buzz and Sherry. They were a couple in our church who had a really awesome ministry with some of the men and women in our community who are homeless. And I was able to go with them one time as we walked down the Greenway and we were able to interact with a bunch of folks and give some food. And, and I watched as their ministry evolved. And, and then I remember last year where we were able to go, it was earlier this year, we went down to Railroad Park and with, with food and Bibles and chairs. And all these people, as they showed up, they all knew Buzz and Sherry. They had a relationship. Buzz and Sherry had been fostering a relationship with these people for months and years. And I got to watch as people just kind of came out of the woodwork and gathered under the awning at Railroad Park and sat in chairs and grabbed a hot dog and opened up a Bible. And as these men and women, not just their physical needs were met, their relational needs were met, they were loved by Buzz and Sherry as parables of Jesus. They got to sit in God's Word. It wasn't perfect. It was messy. It was beautiful. It wasn't the table in their home, but it was a table. As people gather around your table, Christ heals the parched lands of their hearts as you share words of salt and light. Rosaria finishes her book by saying, Radically ordinary hospitality means silence and sadness turned into prayer without calling for prayer requests. I absolutely love that picture. As you begin to sit with people around your table, invest your life in theirs, you begin to know how to pray with them and walk with them and be an intimate part. You become a trusted part of their lives. And so here's what I want you to do. Here's the very applicational aspect of today's sermon. I, I want you to consider if you'd be willing, honestly, to see your home as a resource for the kingdom. To see your table as a place to invite strangers and neighbors. If you look inside your bulletin, you would have gotten a little handout today. It looks like this. As we met as a staff this week, 
And as we talked about what it would mean for us to begin to really see our home and our kitchen table as a place where we can see the neighbor, the stranger become neighbor and the neighbor become friend, we we thought we need to see our tables not as just a a, a hunk of wood sitting in a dining room, but but as a gift from God. And so we begin to talk about this thing of consecration. If you look at the, the beginning of the front side of that where it says consecration of the dining table, I'm just going to read along as you follow with me. Pastor Jeremy put this resource together, and I think, it's, I think it's profound. The dinner table is the place where the members of a household meet. It's the place of belonging, the place of physical and spiritual nourishment through sharing the fruits of the earth, the place of gratitude and celebration. It is a dedicated space for conversation and an occasion for ritual performance guided by tradition and table etiquette and lifelong customs. At the dinner table, we honor all five graces, sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste. Thus, the dinner table is the preferred venue for so many important celebratory occasions. In the prayer of the great banquet from Luke 14, Jesus portrays himself as the master of a great house who has prepared dinner for guests. When his invitation to dine is disregarded by some, he sends his servants to go out and gather all that will come to enjoy his banquet with him. We are both the guests invited and the servants whom Jesus has sent to invite others to banquet with him at his table. In light of this, there is an invitation for us to think of our dining table in a fresh way. It's not simply our table, but it's the Lord's table. It's a place to meet with him. And so we've given you guys a very simple practice. The practice of consecrating your table can be done in your own home. It serves to invite God to use your table as a place for others to meet with Jesus and the steps are simple. We're encouraging you, church, if, if you're comfortable with this, is to take this resource home and set a time. Gather around it as a family. Offer a prayer. Anoint your table with oil as a sign of, the cons- of consecrating it for sacred use. And invite someone over, a neighbor, a friend, for a cup of coffee or a meal. Would you pray with me? Father, love you so much. God, I'm so thankful that you have um, gathered us in this place today, God. You've, you've, you've caused us to, to think differently about what it means, God, that we would see our neighbor as friend. God, you've, you've caused us to think today about what the table signifies, both biblically and in our own lives and in our own homes. God, I pray that as we as we bow our heads, God, as we turn our face to you in prayer, God, by the power and by, and by the moving of your spirit in our lives, God, would you move in such a way, God, where, where tables all across this valley would open up. God, where eyes would be lifted and where men and women who know and love you would begin to look at the world around them with your very eyes, God. Would you soften hearts and, and open doors and opportunities for friendship and conversations, and God, would you embolden the men and women of this church and of your church, God, to begin to see their home and their table as a resource that you have given them to be used by you for your glory. And God, would you embolden us and give us courage and love and conviction to reach out to those around us and to invite them into our homes to invite them around the table. God, to venture to a place where we are willing to form authentic relationship, to listen. And God, ultimately, God, to have conversations that would honor you, God, that would point people to you, God, that men and women who are right now in our city, who are far from you, who are poor and blind and crippled and lame and captive and oppressed, spiritually and in all their ways, God, would you, would you bring them in your grace to the tables of your people 
that ultimately they may sit at your very table. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.